Amen. Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 7 this morning. Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Last time we saw God, out of sheer grace and mercy, swear that he would never again send a flood of water to destroy the whole earth. That he would never again destroy the whole earth. Not until judgment day, that is. But though human nature is thoroughly corrupt, mankind deserves the flood just as much after the flood as before the flood. That was the point of last week's text. Yet God decided to be merciful. He chose to restrain his judgment on all creation until the last day, until judgment day. And there was nothing that caused God to do that except his own choice and desire to do so. There was no other reason. He didn't have to do it. He could have wiped us all out at that moment or chose to do it every day, every other day, every year. It would all be right. But God decided to be merciful. He decided to delay. And one day there will be a full and final judgment with strict justice in the light of God's perfect righteousness. That is promise. That is coming. But until that day, while the earth remains, as scripture said, the order and workings of this world, this universe, the stability, the seasons, the growing and spawning and germinating cycles, the phases of the moon, solar days and nights and years, they will continue. God ensures, God has sworn they will continue. And so how are we in this world The world that Noah and his family stepped into. A world fallen and now devastated by the flood and changed. How will we function and live without once again destroying ourselves in our own sinfulness? Has God done anything after the flood to enable man, to help man, to live in this now fallen world? Well, that's what this sermon is all about. The good And common grace gifts of God to everyone in this world. Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, we thank you for your word, for your truth. We pray it would change us this morning. Do so for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord. From Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. This is God's holy and perfect word. So God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood... By man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, 
Be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. The word of the Lord. I want you to notice this morning the blessing renewed. The blessing renewed. Look at verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now where have we heard that before? All the way back in chapter 1. When God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We just get the first part of that blessing in verse 1 because the rest of it's coming uh, later in our text. But that first blessing was to one couple. They happen to be everybody on the earth, Adam and Eve. This blessing in our text is to four couples And they happen to be everybody that's on the face of the earth. And so even as the flood was sort of an unmaking of the world, so God now is renewing the world. And he begins by renewing the blessing. The blessing that he gave to Adam and Eve, he now gives, but think of it, to fallen mankind. To sinful mankind. To mankind that still deserves His judgment. The flood didn't change that. The flood didn't change man. Didn't change man at all. Man was just as sinful before the flood as after the flood. And God knows that. And yet God pronounces on fallen man the same blessing. Be fruitful. It's in a command. Multiply. And fill the earth. And so man has the same purpose. To glorify God in the world. To rule the world as his image bearer. And that's what God is saying to Noah and his sons and to their wives. Matthew Henry calls this text the Magna Carta that God gives to his vice regent man. Because there's a grant of land, the whole earth. There's a grant of rule, rule everything. And there's a grant of sustenance where God increases man's diet, as we'll notice. And man's nourishment, man's ability to to live in the world. But all of this is a condescension to sinful man. And God is increasing the blessing, not lessening it. He's increasing it. And I can prove that to you with one verse, verse 7. God had only said once to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, etc., etc. I want you to count how many times God says it to Noah and to his sons and to their wives. Verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, first time, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Then skip down to verse 7. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, second time. Bring forth abundantly in the earth, third time, and multiply in it four times what God had said to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful, multiply, multiply, bring forth abundantly. That last time, uh, multiply in it is actually a different verb. It's team, team in it, swarm in it. Think of like those swarming creatures, you know, those teeming creatures in the sea where there's just like millions of them, you know, in schools swarming around. God tells man to do that. God wants human beings, to fill up this earth, to multiply in this earth. And so he's increasing the blessing. Why? Because sinful man is now not able in his sinful condition to just believe God. He has to hear it again and again and again. So God assures him. He's giving him assurance. Yes, I know you're sinful. Yes, you deserve my judgment, but go forth. I'm telling you to go forth. Be fruitful, multiply. Yes, be fruitful. Yes, be fruitful. Yes, multiply. 
God says it four times. It's an increase in the blessing because man now needs more assurance. And again, it's a blessing and not cursing. Man is now fallen. He is ruined. Every thoughts of his heart are only evil continually. Genesis 6, 5. Genesis 8, 21. Before the flood, after the flood. He hasn't changed. God has just said, I'm going to continue this creation. Because I am God. And I am good. And I'm going to bless and not curse. Of course, who is being blessed? Noah and his son, scripture says. But I think it's clear that all eight of them are being blessed, right? The very same blessing was pronounced on both Adam and Eve. God said them multiple times in Genesis 1. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, etc. All of those things in the plural, plural masculine, but the masculine includes the feminine. I thought this would be a good Sunday to give us a little pronoun lesson. In this text, if you would look down through it, every pronoun, every verb, because Hebrew verbs have gender as well, is masculine. Every single one. Yet there's no commentator in the world that I know of that would take Genesis 9, 1 to 7 and say it's only written to males. Just think about that if that was the case. If females were not included in the masculine gender. By the way, all languages do that. All languages, if there's a group of mixed people, it will speak to them using masculine pronouns or verbs or whatever. But it's inclusive. But if that was the case in this text, then not only would the men alone be commanded to be fruitful and multiply, and that would be a neat trick. But also, to the men alone would the fear of the animals be put. To the men alone would... Animals be given for food, but the men alone would not be allowed to eat blood. Women would be allowed to eat all the blood they wanted. And to the men alone would there be a prescription against capital punishment and that men would have to be put to death if they murdered, but women could murder anybody they wanted and wouldn't be put to death. And that would be the absurdity of this text if you would do that. And that's true for all the commandments of God. In fact, if you go to the Ten Commandments... Every one of the Ten Commandments is you, masculine, singular, shall have no other gods before me. You, masculine, singular, shall not make unto yourself a graven image. Because God is talking to all people in the masculine, which is what all languages do. And we should stay with what God has done and not try to change according to the sinful desires of human beings who somehow say it's not appropriate to use the wrong pronoun. The pronouns that we use are accordance with truth and reality and not accordance to feelings that go against truth and reality. And so we don't lie. We use the appropriate pronouns. But it is appropriate, again, to speak to men and women using the masculine pronouns because God's Word does that. New Testament example. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. 28. I Notice we're having communion today. I'll probably read this text later. 1 Corinthians 11. The Lord's Supper as it was delivered to the Apostle Paul from the Lord Jesus himself. And in the midst of that, that uh, text, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight 28 says, But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat from the bread and drink from the cup. Right? Lest he bring judgment to himself. Him, 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 him. Everybody in this room knows that that's both men and women. Right? Some of your newer translations may say, let a person examine, but it'll still say himself. Because if it says themselves, then you lose 
the biblical instruction that this is for every person and not for a group. And when you do that, and a lot of the translations, this is one of the reasons why I tell you guys, you know, if you're going to buy a Bible, please, if you're not sure, check with me. I'll tell you the ones that are actually legitimate translations and then the ones that are biased and distorted translations, what are called gender-neutral Bibles. One of the most uh, notorious, is a couple of them, the new NIV, 2011 on, do not buy that. The new revised standard version. I'll give you an example. What, it, what the new revised standard version does, it takes all of those he and, and him and stuff like that that's written to all people. We understand that. But the Bible, God's word, the Holy Spirit used the masculine to represent both men and women. By the way, all saved people are represented in the masculine man, Jesus Christ. Is that offensive somehow? Because if you're not in that man, you're not saved. All saved people are in the masculine man, Jesus Christ. But in this use, uh, the RSV, the NRSV, the RSV is a fine translation except for a couple of things that it does notoriously bad, like getting rid of the word propitiation. But other than that, it's, it's fine. It doesn't do what the NRSV does. The NRSV takes... The words they, them, there, and those, and it has it 1,732 times more than the RSV because it gets rid of he and him and his, and it replaces it with the plural. And in fact, it takes the word man, the NRSV, and it makes it 1,605 times less than it's found in the RSV, and yet the Holy Spirit put that word man there 1,605 times more then the NRSV does it. And so what I want you to notice is that all human beings are blessed in this blessing. Don't read this blessing. Well, God only blessed Noah and his sons. He's blessing their wives too. He's blessing and he's commanding all of them because this is the way in which God addresses them. They're couples, right? They're standing there. Two who are one flesh. And God is speaking to them and the men are representing uh, their families and their wives. They are the heads of their wives. God is speaking to all of them through their husbands. And so this is God's blessing renewed to all mankind. Secondly, I want you to notice man's rights are increased. Man's rights are increased. Well, in Genesis 1.26, God said to Adam and Eve, let them... Again, it's masculine, plural, but it's them. There's only two people in the world, Adam and Eve. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And we see in our text something even stronger. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the air and on all that move on the earth and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Did you ever go fishing? And, you know, you're maybe not a good fisherman or you don't know much about fishing and you start talking loud on the shore. I guarantee you there'll be other fishermen who'll tell you to shut up or go somewhere else, right? Because you'll scare all the fish away. Because fish are afraid of people. Like all the other animals, they're naturally that way. Could you imagine if it wasn't the case? If animals did not have the fear of man. You see, in the garden before the fall, this wasn't necessary because all of the animals would have obeyed Adam and Eve's voice. There would have never been an animal that would have done harm to them or to anyone else. That wasn't part of the creation. That came in with sin. Thorns and thistles and the ground is cursed. 
And so there are now uh, dangers in the creation, and part of that is the animals. But if the animals, if God would not have done that, and then fallen man is in a world of animals who do violence. Think about that. I mean, wolves and coyotes just coming into your yard, you know, at looking to, when your little children are out. You know, no fear of you whatsoever. Not afraid. You know, even varmints like snakes and skunks and porcupines. What if they had no fear? And you go around a corner and bam, you get hit in the face with quills of a porcupine because he thinks you're his prey. No fear of you. I mean, man would have to be at war. We'd have to wipe out a lot of the animals and that would eventually wipe us out because we depend upon the animals in a lot of ways. So, you know, this is not something that, oops, dropped my glasses. This is not something that is to take lightly. This is a great blessing to man that God would put the fear of us on the animals. That they're naturally that way. I was, remember reading about, uh, I believe it was a man and a woman, a scientist or something, and they were parachuting into this region in Africa. And they land like 100 yards or something away from um, uh, a pride of lions. I don't know if their plane went down or something, but they have to jump out of their, uh, their plane so they don't make it to where they're going. And, I mean, they're dead. Those lions are going to kill them. But what they did was they recognized... They didn't panic and they start to like put their arms in the air and slowly like jog towards the lions and yell, you know, human words. Hey, get out of here. And the lions got up and ran off because humans are coming. They don't know there's only two people there that they could easily eat. They just see some people coming. Well, we don't want to be where the people are because even lions, by definition, will run from human civilization. They don't just come in to, you know, to the towns and cities. Yeah, you go out into the woods alone or something, they might take you out. But ordinarily, again, this is God's blessing on man. That God is giving the animals into our hands that we are actually still called to subdue and have dominion over them. And God enables that in a fallen world by making them afraid of us. And we wouldn't be able to do it. If that was not the case. So here God is increasing man's rights. And that's not the only way he's doing it. Verse 3. Every moving thing that lives. Everything that moves. Hebrew says. Everything that moves. And lives. Every living thing that moves rather. Shall be food for you. I have given you all things even as the green herbs. The Hebrew literally says. As the green herb. Like the green herb. I give you all. God here in this text gives every organic thing to man as food. Now, we know in the time of Moses, God is going to limit some of those things, right? The ceremonial law comes in. But that's not the case here. The ceremonial law is for a particular purpose, for Israel as a nation, to typify and to symbolically show forth Christ and to keep them separate from the other peoples. Lots of reasons for that. But when Jesus comes, right, the Gospels are clear, Jesus cleanses all things, the Gospels say. And and Acts chapter 10 and 11, that's repeated with Peter's vision. Rise, Peter, kill and eat three things, three times. Do not call unclean what I have cleansed. Clearly the cleanliness laws are gone now. They're fulfilled. They serve their purpose. They are at an end. And I emphasize that because I know periodically, you know, Christians will be, um, what's what's the word, Um, deceived maybe by these guys who write these books and say, secret diet in the Bible and try to get you to like, you know, do some sort of a kosher type diet as if somehow that's going to be better for you. That was not the point of that diet. It simply wasn't. All right. The point of that diet was to show forth Christ. And it was a ceremony, it was a symbol. 
So there are no, like, secret, you know, if you eat hyssop and stuff like that, you know, you eat hyssop, you better have a bathroom nearby, I can tell you that. You know, there's, there's stuff like that that, again, it's not for the purpose of, you know, this secret code. The animals are given to man for food. It's part of the blessing, and it's an expansion here. I think that's clear. As the green herb, I give you all. Why would God say it that way if he's just renewing all of it? He would just say, as I gave you all, I give you all again. He says, as the green herb, and we know where he gave the green herb. Genesis 1.29, before the fall, and Genesis 3.18, after the fall. Because in 3.18, all that he has is the herb. In 1.29, it's the herb and it's the fruit of the trees in chapter 2. Because he's in the garden. He's thrown out of the garden after the fall. So now all he gets is the herb. But now, after the flood, 1,600 plus years later, God says, I'm giving you the animals. And again, part of this is because we need this. In a fallen world, in a world where the ground is not able to produce the way it was before the deluge, when the soil was still as God had created it before sin. Matthew Henry points this out in the 1600s. He says, quote, Hitherto, most think... Man had been confined to feed only upon the products of the earth. Fruits, herbs, and roots, and all sorts of corn and milk. So was the first grant. And he cites Genesis 129. But then he says this. But the flood, having perhaps washed away much of the virtue of the earth, and so rendered its fruits less pleasing and less nourishing, now God enlarged the grant and allowed man to eat flesh. I think that's sound thinking. That's possibly one of the reasons why that God did it. I think the bigger reason is that it's increasing man's rights and that man is, uh, is called to subdue and we are able to eat the animals. And again, um, this is something that man would have needed in this world. But this is a great increase. I mean, to take the animals that God had created. Now, before the fall, we know that they burned them I mean, before uh, the flood, they were commanded to burn them and to wear their skins. But there's no evidence, it seems to me, that man ate the animals. And I don't know how we could say that he did until God actually gave him permission. Because I don't know how it's by faith to respond unless God gives a word, right? We're, We're reformed people. We have this regulative principle. We don't do what God has not forbidden. We do only what God has commanded. And here God commands. He actually gives them. The animal. So now he can eat it in good faith. The Geneva Bible, the original 1599 Geneva Bible, points that out. He says, it says on this verse, by this permission, man may, with a good conscience, use the creatures of God for his needs. We wouldn't be able to do that without a word from God. What right do we have to put that, that donkey to that wagon and make that donkey push it, right? What, what right would we have to do that unless God had said, you can use the animals? What right would we have to kill a cow? cook it and eat it unless God had said this creature that I've made I'm giving it to you for food I mean even the herb God didn't even leave it to man to just decide to eat the herb I give you the herb he has to give them the herb well of course he has to give them the animals Calvin by the way considers this whole question of little consequence and even though he shows arguments against this affirming that maybe God had allowed man to eat meat before, he concludes all of his thoughts by saying, quote, I affirm nothing on the subject. So one of the times I don't follow Calvin, I'm just noticing that. But he does begin the whole discussion by by admitting, quote, nearly all commentators infer that it was not lawful for man to eat flesh before the deluge, end quote. So Calvin admits, nearly all say this, I'm not going to say anything. Um, 
But I think this is important for us to notice that God does this. And I want to say it in terms of where we have certain groups today, right? Uh, And I'm just going to pick on one of them. PETA, uh, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, right? I mean, everybody's familiar with them and what they say. Um, Peter, uh, PETA, PETA, right? Yeah, PETA. PETA says, quote, on their website, animals are not ours to eat, wear, experiment on, use for entertainment, or abuse in any way, end quote. That is directly against the word of God. Animals are not ours to eat, wear. Who made the first fur coats? God did. In Genesis chapter 3, God killed several animals, clothed Adam and Eve with their skins, and they were taught to do that. And I believe they did kill and wear the animals from that point on, and they offered their bodies up as a whole burnt offering, an olah. By the way, that's what Noah offers in Genesis 8.20. He offers a whole burnt offering. He burns the whole animal. The word olah is used there. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered hola, whole burnt offerings. There wasn't anything left. I mean, you take the skin, but they burned the whole animal. And that's all we see until this point where now man is permitted to eat. Peter says no. That's unethical. I submit to you an ethic that goes against the Bible is really the unethical ethic. Peter is unethical. They have no basis for saying this. And in fact, if there's no God, there's no reason why we would even consider anything right or wrong with regard to animals or anyone else. Peter's position on animals is against God. God said, I give you the animals for food. Peter says the animals are not to be used for food. Now, how can a Christian in good conscience support an organization that actually condemns the very God of the word. And I'm serious about this. We have to really consider, do we want to promote things that actually say our God is unethical? We really need to think about that today. And I'm just using them for an example because it seems to me it's a pretty easy one. They say animals are not ours to eat. God says, I give you everything that moves for food. Now, You decide who's ethical and who's unethical. These texts in in Genesis are foundational for our thinking. And they speak to the issues of our day. And we ought to use them that way and understand. Peter has no idea what the purpose for animals are. In Isaiah chapter 7 verse 15. Prophesying of Jesus. It says curds and honey he shall eat. Peter would say no. Curds are a milk product. From animals, And to make animals give us food is to enslave them, according to Peter. And of course, honey is to take that stuff that those bees work so hard on, and we can't do that either. Curds and honey he shall eat, Scripture says. And Jesus did eat curds and honey. Not only that, Jesus rode a donkey. Made the donkey his slave, according to Peter. He rode a donkey into Jerusalem. Jesus wore sandals on his feet that we know were made of leather. Because that's what they made their sandals. They didn't have any other ability. They didn't have fibers, you know, artificial products to make shoes out of. Jesus ate fish. He multiplied fish to 5,000 people 
and then 4,000 people, but he ate fish. And in fact, he ate fish after his resurrection. In John 21, he's on the shore and the disciples are out there fishing. And Peter says, uh, you know, it's the Lord. And he puts his shirt on, dives in the water, and Jesus is cooking fish for them. In Luke 24, after his resurrection, and the disciples don't believe it's him, and he says it's him, and they still don't believe it. Do you have something to eat? And they give him a piece of fish and honeycomb, two animal products, and Jesus eats them both as a resurrected, glorified, sinless, perfectly righteous man. Beloved, the animals are given to us for food. Now, I say all that to say, you don't have to eat the animals if you don't want to. There are Christians I know who are vegetarians and who are vegans. And you have every right to decide what you're going to eat. Whether you eat meat, Paul says, although it's being sacrificed to idols, but still the same principle, or not. That's up to you. That's Christian freedom. You can choose to eat meat or not. But what you can never do as a Christian is say it's wrong to eat meat. Because you call God wrong when you say that. Or to think that somehow you're better for not eating meat. If you think that, then you think God is wrong. Because God, who is perfect in righteousness and holiness, gives man meat to eat. And this is a great increase in our rights in this world. Thirdly, I want you to notice human life protected. Human life protected. I'm going to have to go faster now because I wasted too much time again. Uh, Verse 4. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is the blood. What is this talking about? This is against cruelty to animals. That's what this is about. The one thing that Peter has right is man shall not abuse animals. And we are not to abuse the animals. Not because of some random thought that they have, but because the animals are made by God. And they're important. And we don't abuse them. And we don't afflict them. And we don't, you know, like sometimes a little boy will catch a, something and start to torture it or something. I mean, I've read that anyway. But you're not supposed to do those things, right? We don't kill for sport, for pleasure, torture the animals. God is concerned about the animals. All, the original Geneva Bible says on this verse, all, by this command, all cruelty is forbidden. Because to eat an animal with the blood simply means to eat it while it's alive. Can you imagine? I mean, that's the way a wolf devours a sheep. And the sheep is screaming and it's ripping its parts off. It's eating it with the blood. It's the way a lion eats a zebra, right? Man is not to be that way, not not to be barbarous. And by the way, there are places in the world today where it's considered a great delicacy to eat living animals. You've probably watched it, right? You can go on YouTube. A lot of it's not in this country, but some of, it, some of them are. Some restaurants, very, very high-class restaurants, right? Where you eat, do you ever see the one where they have this octopus like on a stick and you like stick it in your mouth while it's alive and you swallow it? This is considered, you know, really, I don't know, upscale to do this thing and you can feel it in your belly, I guess. And you can eat living snakes and eels and monkeys while they're alive. You break into their, I mean, th- this is things that are done in this world today. And it's cruel. And it's inhuman. And man ought not to treat animals this way. We are not to eat the flesh with the blood. By the way, there is no similar command to this anywhere in any other ancient people that human beings would consider the animals and not be cruel to them. We are permitted to kill them and to eat them, but we are not to do that. In some wicked and sinful way. The Bible is filled with commands where God is concerned 
for the treatment of animals. The command to not boil a kid in its mother's milk. You ever wonder why in Israel or in a Jewish restaurant you can't get a cheeseburger? It's from that command. You shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. The rabbis have reasoned this. It's possible that that piece of cheese could be from the mother of the burger, which could be from the child. And so you have the cheese and the burger together. Now, I don't know. Can you have a beef burger and a a piece of goat cheese? Maybe. I don't know. I'm not that detailed into why they do what they do. But they're trying to take seriously that command, right? Shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. I don't think that has anything to do with cheeseburgers. But it's talking about being cruel to animals. In fact, when Israel was commanded to sacrifice, God says on the eighth day you may sacrifice. But he says this in the Pentateuch, seven days it shall be with its mother. Even the animal, God says, get seven days with its mother before you're allowed to take it and give it to me. Before God even takes it, he gives this animal seven days with its mother. What about the command where you, if you come across a a bird's nest, right? You remember this one? And there's eggs in the nest. You can take the eggs, but you can't take the mother in the eggs. Notice you can't do it the other way around either. You can't take the mother and not the eggs because then the eggs will die without a mother. You can take the eggs, but not the mother and the eggs. Why? Because God cares about the animals. Because the animals are his creation. When Noah is pleading with God, or not Noah, Jonah, when Jonah is upset because God won't destroy Nineveh, remember? And he's sitting under the plant and he's all ticked off. And remember what God says to Jonah about all these people who don't know their right hand from their left? And then he adds this, and also there are much cattle in the city. I don't want to just destroy cattle, Jonah, for no reason if I don't have to. I mean, this is our God. He's saying that we are not to do this. That we are not to uh, delight and this kind of cruelty to animals, that we are to treat them with respect. And when we kill them and eat them or wear their skins, we are to do so with gratitude to God and with respect and, uh, again, um, dignity to that animal. And killing it and doing so in a way that is as is, is painless as we can. And this command in verse 4 is not ultimately about the animals. As I said, this, this is about human life protected because what happens is if we allow ourselves to become bloodthirsty and sort of, you know, this um, um, blood sport type thing with animals, you know, cockfighting and stuff, dog fighting, which still happens in America, still happens in other countries. Why is it outlawed? Because we recognize, number one, that we ought not to treat animals that way. Number two, when you get that kind of bloodlust from watching things kill each other, then you, you respect human life less. And you're okay with it in human life. And it's not, uh, it's not unusual or it's not uh, unique that the Roman Colosseum went first from just animals fighting each other then to human beings fighting and killing each other because that blood lust will grow. And that's why verse 4 is connected to verse 5. Right after saying, you shall not cruelly eat animals, it says, surely for your lifeblood. You see, if you start to get cruel with the animals, guess what? You're not going to count man's blood as anything either. And so God right now says, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast. I will require it. Israel was commanded to put to death an ox that gored a man. Not because the ox is responsible, but because that ox killed someone in the image of God. And therefore that ox must be put to death. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast. I will require it from the hand of every man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of blood. What is God saying here? God is saying, I will punish murderers. And I think there is a sovereign, providential um, oversight here that God himself will do it. 
Calvin says God raises up murderers to kill murderers. Don't we see that? I mean, in, in today, I mean, I was looking at the violent crime statistics in our cities and how many of these violent crimes happen with these gangs. You know, Chicago averages a 700 plus murders a year now. Murders, not just gunshots, but murders, if you take the total. And a lot of it is in these gang places where one man, they're killing each other constantly. And Jesus says something like that to Peter. Remember, Peter takes the sword. Remember what Jesus says to him, Matthew 26, 52? Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place. All who take the sword will perish by the sword. Now, Jesus isn't giving an absolute promise that every time anybody takes a weapon and tries to harm someone, they're going to be killed by that weapon. But he is saying that when you live that way, there's a good chance that you're going to die that way. That's all Jesus is saying to Peter. You want to live by your sword? Well, that's what, that's what happens to people who die by the sword. If you're going to be a violent criminal, there's a good chance you're going to be killed in violence. And this is God's sovereign vengeance on murderers. But it's more than that, beloved. It's actually a command for capital punishment. And that's verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. God is commanding this. God is commanding the murderer to to be put to death. God is commanding it. All right? This is a a command to humans, to human government. Many commentators see this as the first command for sheer, uh, pure human government. The first government is the angel with the sword guarding the garden, but that's angelic. This is the first time where God is saying to human beings in society, if anybody kills another person, you need to kill that person. You need to put him to death. All right? And this is protecting man. This is a command to punish human murderers with capital punishment. Again, murderers, right? Not somebody who accidentally kills somebody or something like that. But uh, commentator after commentator. Let me just give you one, uh, um, one here, Martin Luther. This, then, is the source from which all civil and Gentile justice flows. For if God grants man power over life and death, surely he also grants power over what is less, such as fortune, family, servants, and lands. God wills all these things to be subject to the power of certain men that they may punish the guilty. We need to be in favor. We need to be backing up the, the, the law of God here. I think every Christian should be in favor of capital punishment for murderers. Because that's what God is commanding. This is one of the Noachian commands, by the way. The rabbis believe that God gave seven commands to all mankind. And this is one of them. That murderers are to be put to death. This is for all human beings. This isn't for some type Israel thing. Murderers must be put to death. And I want you to notice why, in my fourth point, God's image retained. My fourth point is God's image retained. Here's the reason. For, in the image of God, he made man. That's why. The, the, it's, it's not about being a deterrent. It's not about being, you know, even vengeance or something like that. Maybe rehabilitating people because they, they'll see this and they'll be more, you know. It's, it has nothing to do with that. I mean, those are good effects. The only reason, the reason God gives is that God made man in his image. Therefore, for someone else to willfully kill a person is to attack God. And if we don't put that person to death, We're saying that didn't matter. We're saying justice isn't given to that. 
Now I know, and we'll hear this from time to time, I've heard Larry King and others interview Christians and say, well, you know, if you're pro-life, you have to be against capital punishment. I love that. That's, that's fantastic. You know, that tells me a lot about the interviewer. So you don't see the difference between an innocent child being murdered and a heinous, guilty murderer being executed. One in the womb of his mother when he hasn't done anything. The other one in the world when he's actually killed people. You don't see a difference between those two acts. That this is right, protect this innocent life. And that this is right, kill this heinous, guilty murderer. There's no contradiction. Both of those things are because man is made in the image of God and life matters. Human life matters because God exists and we are made in his image. And for anyone to kill a person is to forfeit his life according to the word of God. And if we respected life, we would execute them. And I guarantee you, if this nation would ever, and I don't think I'll see it in my lifetime unless God does a mighty work. If this nation would ever speedily and quickly put all willful murderers to death. We're not talking about, you know, again, some kind of homicide where you're in an accident or something. Somebody who willfully kills someone who's innocent, who's not trying to harm them, who kills them. And if we immediately would execute those people, I guarantee you, there would not be the amount of bloodshed that there is in this nation. But we don't respect God. We don't believe man is made in his image. And so we don't justly execute murderers. And so our land is full of innocent blood. And it's not been taken away. And God's judgment falls. And that's what this text is about. It's protecting our, it's protecting ourselves. And it's honoring God. By the way, this same command makes racism impossible. Makes sexism impossible. That all people are made in the image of God. And you can't treat them less than fully human. And you must treat them with respect and dignity. Because to kill or to harm or to treat somebody as less than human is to attack God. That's what this verse is saying, beloved. And so I want you to notice all these ways that God is increasing man's blessing. And giving man a way to deal with sin in this world. In particular here at the end with the shedding of innocent blood. But I want you to think about something. That it is, even though... There is blessing in this text, and then there's this warning of bloodshed. People are going to continue to kill one another. This is what you do when they do. I want you to think about how in spite of this, God brings salvation. And God brings salvation, we know, through the shedding of innocent blood. It's actually through the murder of Christ that you and I are saved. It doesn't make what Judas did right, but it shows God's power. That even in a land like ours, filled with innocent blood, we can trust God and live for him. He will protect his own and bless us as we seek to do so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the increased blessings that we have after the flood of Noah. That you've enabled us to live in this fallen world. That you've even instituted protections for us from the wicked who will not restrain themselves. And so, Father, how we pray for our land. That we would repent that we would first of all see man as made in your image, that man is higher than the animals, that to treat the animals as something that they are not doesn't raise them up, it just lowers man. And Lord God, when we 
Do not punish those who attack your image. Father, we show that we don't value human life. And so, Father, we've reaped what we've sown. We confess that as a people. And we would ask that you would cause mankind in America and around the world to bow its knees to you. And that we would confess that indeed we are made in your image. Therefore, we must treat one another with dignity and respect and consider crimes against one another in the true light of who you are. And so, Father, give us these graces, we pray, for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.